This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. This week on Meet and Three, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sting upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about innovators, entrepreneurs, career changers, crazy, interesting, fun, creative people who have uh, moved from other industries to work in food. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. And we are super excited to welcome two guests, another duo, to our uh, studio this week, Anisha Hargrave, who is the executive chef of Chop Salad, and Ali Binks, who is research and development at Chop Salad. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So you've you've both done a lot of very different things and and as most of our guests have took pretty circuitous paths to arri- arrive in your current positions at Chopped and to work in food in general. Uh, Anisha, do you want to kick us off? Tell us tell us what you did before and, and how you wound up doing this. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. I worked in commercial auto parts sales. Of course, of directly. course. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not that far-fetched uh, to make the leap. But yeah, I enjoyed tinkering and wanted to do something that would let me learn about tinkering in a professional way. And my cousin worked in auto parts and he would always talk about it and I would come visit him and... Um, and one day just kind of asked him if there were opportunities and there were, um, and it would give me something to learn and and explore and, uh, put my hands to use. And, um, I took right to it and, uh, yeah. And the next thing I knew I was going to culinary school, so to speak. And your, your family, you had a lot of cooks in your family, right? There was a, a deep tradition yeah, I mean, even today, but growing up for sure, uh, food played a really critical role in my family as a way to bring us together like they do for many families. But I just grew up knowing that food tastes good. <laughs> so it was foreign to me when food didn't taste good. And um, so I expected that everybody could be a good cook. We were challenged at home to just understand flavor and make things taste good. I roast a chicken today by my grandmother's standards and and think about what she think it's good. Um, and that's how I grew up. And, I, you know, I think back to being like a eight or nine year old kid eating some really esoteric things like I was eating cow's tongue and paella and didn't really eat a lot of, I mean, normal kid food. And that was my food life. Uh, so to look back on that now, it's really appropriate that I am in the culinary industry. What did your grandmother think when you were in culinary school coming home with, uh, I don't know, were there any recipes that you brought home to her or things that you saw connections between things that you were learning in culinary school and things that uh, your family members had made at home? Yeah, I mean, culinary school for me was a way to really gain foundational knowledge that I did not have. I just knew about food and, and flavor um, from my uh, experience in my family. And so when I would learn about things like a bechamel, for instance, and and then when I saw one made and, and there was a correlation between that and the name, and I was like, wait a minute, I grew up, my grandmother was making this for a dish, and I don't know if she knows that it really is like a thing. And so I'm going to call her and tell her, and she sort of was borderline aloof about it. And um, <laughs> And but yeah, and and so I told her and she's just like, you know, that's just what my aunt taught me from when I was a kid because her family cooked um, when she was really young. And experiences like that were really priceless um, to know that maybe she was doing a lot more than she was aware of. 
And, and Allie, what's, uh, what's your story? How did you wind up at Chopped? Oh, that's a long story, I think. <laughs> um, it's been a busy, what, 15 years now. Um, so I've always loved to cook. Uh, like Anisha, um, kind of brought my family together. We always cook together. Um, I'm 33 years old. I've never had a can of soup. My mom cooked everything. Um, she's still a little crazy in that regard. How did she, where did she learn to cook? Um, her mother. Yeah, my grandmother, I think, sort of spoiled them in their own ways of my mom being a relatively picky eater and would always make her something special. So she did the same for us in a different way. You know, um, it was special because it was homemade and um, very involved in the process. My brother is super into cooking as well. Um, so it became a thing. And without really thinking about it, I just thought that that was normal. Um, and then I think when you go to other people's houses, you learn that, like Anisha said, some things don't taste good, or like some people get to eat Burger King for lunch. I was not one of oh, those yeah. kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was always something um, homemade for sure. Um, so I think I sort of miss out on a lot of cultural things, or like I did not have certain things um, that people reference. Like I would love to have been given Dunkaroos with lunch, and I was never given Dunkaroos with lunch. Um, Dunkaroos, man, are good. <laughs> I've never had them. <laughs> Dunkaroos are a cookie that you dip into frosting that is 98% sugar, just yeah. so you know. <laughs> My mom did not buy me them. What it's were some teacher's of your, worst nightmare. Yeah. What were some of your mother's uh, standbys or specialties? As well, a kid? I mean, like, we had, my mom would bake, so, like, we had cookies. They were just homemade cookies. Um, and for, like, lunch, other people were eating, like, white bread sandwiches. Like, I would take sesame breadsticks with rolled up thinly sliced salami on them and like think that that was totally normal and now as an adult and especially an adult that works in food like that is not the norm that is not what kids eat um and I guess like I was picky in my own way because there are certain things that I wouldn't eat any mayo until I lived in France so um definitely a product of my environment good bad or otherwise and and you also came to food from a totally different background. Tell us about that transition. Yeah, totally different. Um, so younger, I was always into like math science stuff. Uh, started out college pre-med, very quickly learned that that was not the path that I wanted to go down. Um, studied abroad, loved buildings, um, eventually graduated with a degree in architecture um, and worked in real estate development. So what is now Barclay Center. I used to work on that project, which was then called Atlantic Yards, and I did like land acquisition and infrastructure stuff. So if you ever have a question about water mains or transit ducts, like totally your girl. Um, Information you use all the time at all Trump, the time, sure. all the time. Yes, um, yeah. It's a little like annoying when I'm just you know into a construction project that has nothing to do with anything. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I think in that role, um, you know, I kind of learned how things came together uh, from a very engineering heavy background. Um, but I also learned like all of these project management skills that are useful now. You know, it's not a building. It's not, I don't, I don't know, any kind of stuff that we were building then. Um, it's a menu, but it's the same skill set. It's just used I think in a much more fun way, um, people want to talk about food more than anything else. So it works. Um, for both of you, you, you came from fairly technical backgrounds and wound up in food, which is similar in that it's also technical and requires a very specific skill set and a, a fairly scientific understanding of how food changes when you cook it, but also has this level of creativity. Um, for each of you, maybe, Ali, you want to start? And then, Anisha, how did you apply that, that technical background training experience you'd had to food? Um, so I would say the creativity is more present in the early stages of what I currently do, but it's always present in just how I approach food. Like, I'm pretty curious about ingredients and uh, different dishes, restaurants, you name it. Like, I'm interested Um and then I like to create from that, you know, put my own spin on things, um, you know, try something and be like, oh, my God, this would be amazing in a different dish. So I always feel pretty creative. But I would say the technicality comes in making that consistent. Um, like I work at a fast casual chain now. And the reality is, is like it might be good in my kitchen. It might be good in Anisha's kitchen. But getting our commissaries to produce things, getting stores to um, make things the same, that is a very technical skill set of like, it's got to be exact. Um, you have to know how to fix something if it goes wrong. Um, all of that is, you know, trial and error. 
And that comes from a very technical place, for sure. I don't know if you agree or... Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. <laughs> so for auto parts, it's interesting because, um, you know, the way a car, any car is put together, every part serves a purpose. And so its relationship to other parts on the car, um, you have to understand those to modify anything. So a lot of people modify cars and do all kinds of crazy things to them. And food's no different. So my passion really lies in identifying flavors, how they come to be, and what parts do it take to uh, make that come about. Like the relationship between flavors and textures to each other is, is really what makes food good. And so for both Allie and I, and in my early days with Chopped, especially when I did do a lot more physical R&D, that's really how I think about uh, our salads. But even in my personal life, it's how I evaluate food and if it tastes good to me. Do you find yourself uh, making parallels with specific car parts? Like this is the spark plug and this is the alternator and this is the uh, whatever. Other uh, you could surely are. do it. I don't often do <laughs> Am that. Am I stretching so too far? Now, right, now I'm going to find myself doing that at F&B meetings. But I want uh, you to do you're that. Right? Yes. I was, I'm totally going to do it as an exercise one day. But you could totally, totally make those correlations. Um, Pretty, pretty easily. Could you give us a sense of the scale that Chopped works on? How many meals, how many yeah. locations, how many meals are you serving a day uh, when you're making meatballs? How many meatballs are you making at a time? Like what, what scale are you working on? We serve thousands of salads every day. Thousands. And depending on the market and the location, because they are so different, um, those numbers can be pretty high, but literally thousands of salads. And we have... Um, call it 60 locations at this point. So we have quite a few that are spread out up and down the north and east coast from New York all the way down to Atlanta and Nashville. So um, we have to really have the ability to scale on a really grand uh, level, thinking about New York and D.C., but also to shrink that a little bit when we get into some of our more emerging markets like Atlanta and, um, and the Nashville market where things are just, you know, we don't have as many units. Just, I also oh, go ahead, Jen. I also want to ask, um, you know, the interplay between your two roles um, as an executive chef and the R and D, um, like just how how do you two work together? Um, like when do you two work together? At what part in the salad process um, from start to finish? And then Misha, it sounds like you were doing R and D at some point. So are you doing less of that now? Because Ali took it over, just like talking a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, so conceptually, um, Allie and I work together quite a bit. Like, we sit next to each other. We sit about this far apart. Yes. You can't see. It's yeah. pretty close. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'll say this. Like, most everything that we do is collaborative. Like, nothing happens in the silo, and that's just the way shop works in general. So uh, the food team is no different, for sure. And so, uh, like I said, conceptually, I still work on R&D and bringing the ideas that Allie then takes to her R&D kitchen and physically brings to life. Because I think it's one thing to talk about some of these things and they can be good ideas on paper. And then to execute on bringing a recipe to life or creating a recipe, a lot of times in Allie's case, um, is a completely different monster. And then we have to taste that execution and provide feedback. So there's a lot of taking of feedback um, on our part and then, you know, revising things and making them work. So collaboratively, it has to work between us and as a team in general. Would you walk us through the, the life cycle of a, a dish? Uh, sure. uh, was there a, a yeah, particular dish that you're working on? Um, well, you brought up meatball, so I feel like okay. that might be a good place <laughs> to start. So that is currently on our menu. Um so we started doing meatballs uh, two years ago. Yeah. Um, we had never done a meatball before. And the reality of things at Chopped is we try and make as much as we possibly can in-house. Um, so no, a, a meatball idea came up um, and we're like, sure, we can do that. And we have four different commissaries in four different markets. Um, and figuring out how to do that was a little bit of a daunting task. Um, so the first thing is I, I make meatballs. <laughs> we make a recipe. We see how it goes. Um, we have a formal tasting every Thursday. As Anisha mentioned, it is very collaborative. There is a lot of taking of feedback. We write everything down. We digest it. Um, we tweak um, and then when we come up with something that we like as a salad, then it's a matter of taking that individual ingredient and figuring out how to make it work. Where did the meatball idea come from? Who, who suggested it and why hadn't you done meatballs before? Um, 
we just hadn't. I actually yeah. don't know why we hadn't, but Harold, who's another part of this um, beautiful ideation collaborative process, um, it was his idea. And Jenny, just to touch on your uh, question of something being cultural, when we were originally doing it, we, we toyed with the idea of having a pork meatball. Pork is just much more present in Thai food. Um, and in order to make it more approachable um, and more meaningful to a chop customer, a little bit lighter, um, we ended up going with turkey. So we take this recipe. Um, I made a pound of meatballs. They tasted good. Um, I prepped each individual ingredient the way it would need to be prepped to go into something in a much larger recipe. Um, they got devoured. Then I made two meatballs. Then I started just getting five pounds of meat. So we would have like five pounds of meatballs. Um, and then the next step is after getting that down to a pat, like it's got to be perfect. Everyone has to be super happy with the texture, the flavor, what they look like, how they hold. Um, Anisha and I will sort of like abuse an ingredient just yeah. to see how it will be handled in store. Like if it's slower and mm -hmm. sitting for a little longer, like we try and have everything be as fresh as humanly possible. Um, but the reality is like things need to be a bit more resilient in a commercial restaurant than they need to be in your house. Um, so we did that and we played around and we figured out how to make it really good. They're really good meatballs. How do you, how do you stress <laughs> test the meatball? Um, turning up the heat like really high and seeing how they sit in that, leaving them in there for a little, like a little longer, seeing how they absorb. They're in a homemade curry sauce. So seeing how it absorbs that, um, it's not something that's being served the minute that it's made. It's being served, you know, through a lunch period. Um, so yeah. it's got to be able to sit for a little bit and not fall apart or not be, you know, um, too tough. It has to be tender. There's a lot of things that you probably wouldn't think about, but when it's not right, you think about it, yeah. you know, when it's not right and you like can't take a fork and like break a bite off, like you will think about yeah. the fact that it is not tender and yeah. it's not delicious. Or, you know, if there's a piece of ginger that's too big and you're biting on it or a basil leaf instead of like a little beautiful herby speck in something. Um, so we do that. We do that. We take everything apart and see how it should be. And then we make a lot of them. And, we and then, yeah, go ahead. Um, and the meatball dish is warm. So was there a point where chopped actually uh, went from cold salad to warm? It's, it seems like, you know, the, having the warm bowls is a thing where was chopped always during warm food. So uh, I've been around CHOP for a long time. Um, and when early in my CHOP days, one of the things that I was challenged with um, helping to bring to life was a warm top salad. And at the time, it literally was a cold salad base with a warm grain blend of some sort and a warm protein. And so our first foray into the warm world was our chicken tinga, which is still on our menu, still a crowd favorite for our customers. And we love it. And that was a painstaking process. Like we were literally giving it away just to get people to understand and trust us to do warm because we've been, you know, to that point known for cold, like cold salads, cold salad wraps, but nothing warm. So it took a while for people to, again, to trust us. And once they did, it allowed for fast forward to, you know, the last year for us to really explore what warm could be within the confines of, of Chopped as a brand and, and our ability to execute. And so now, uh, as of, you know, the end of last year, we have a full-on warm bowl menu category that we're so excited about. But it was that early, that early foray into it that really planted the seed, if you will, with our customers and allowed them to trust us on it. Why did you decide to, to go into warm foods? Where did, that, where did that idea come from? Well, I think, you know, Thinking about salad, you know, I think Tony and Colin, the two founders of Chopped, part of their mission was to get people to think about salad differently. So think about it uh, not necessarily uh, in the old way of just the side dish that was kind of boring. You go to a restaurant and it's obligatory. You get like a little salad and then you get the real meal. Well, salad can be the real meal. So in that regard, are there meal periods where we can have, you know, more appropriate salad? for people who don't consider a cold salad to be appropriate for a dinner period, say for instance, and in the cold weather months, do you yeah. want to always just eat cold or is there a craving for something warm and comforting? How can we check those boxes and really deliver on what our customers are asking us for and doing warm top salads and now warm bowls was a way for us to, uh, to answer those calls. Did it require a very large line overhaul um, from what Chopped originally had? 
Actually, it didn't. And that was something, uh, you know, Allie alluded to. That's part of our thinking process. You know, we mm-hmm. want to minimize um, we want to minimize um, how much we disrupt the natural flow of things in our restaurants, because what does work about it, we don't want to disrupt that. So that was no different when we thought about introducing warm items to um, our line. And we figured out where we had the space and what equipment could fit into that space, um, that the footprint worked. And, um, and we found that equipment and we still use it. And, it and, and, you know, and now we're able to innovate within that. And some of our newer restaurants, especially in the suburban market, have a lot of what you're seeing in the industry where we have pots, you know, really decorative, beautiful pots on the front line that really help um, illustrate that we do make everything in-house as much as possible and that make it feel homemade and and very comforting and and homey. Have you been able to take any of your childhood recipes or recipes you got to play around with in culinary school? Have you been able to apply those to Chopped? yeah, actually, my, um, the meatballs that I normally make uh, were just featured in the um, Italy round. Um, I make them with a mixture Ooh. of beef and pork, and then we did turkey, but it's the same same recipe, yeah. <laughs> which is, like, weird and kind of cool, I guess. Yeah. One of uh, – oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say one of our early um, – I don't know, we did, like, a barbecue-themed – something in the early early days of trying to figure out warm and what could work and I make this barbecue rub for my family and and my friends and you know mostly in the summertime we use it but uh, what's, what's in your barbecue rub that is a trade Top secret, secret. <laughs> right. it is a secret I will not divulge um, but yeah so when we wanted to try to to you know develop something barbecue themed I you know wanted to use this recipe and we used it and that was pretty cool you know and and I was early at a culinary school. So, you know, that was an awesome thing. Had you, uh, when you had your, in your previous jobs, your previous careers, um, had you thought about working in food? What, what would your earlier selves think about uh, what you're doing today? I can, I'll, I'll take this yeah. one. Um, <laughs> I would be um, almost shocked at what my career mm-hmm. has turned into. Um, like I took my job super seriously. I worked a ton. Um, I definitely knew what I was talking about and I was young and I learned so much and it was super intense. Um, I never would have thought that this is what I would be doing, but I also didn't know that this existed. Mm -hmm. And I think like the hard part of making the career change is like, it is a huge gamble, you know, to give up what you know and what you're good at and where you are professionally, um, to start something new, but also to like not know at all how the industry works or what you can do or, um, the, I don't know the stages to get there. Like I had no idea that I would be, um, so tired, um, for a while. When you were working in, in kitchens or in food. Yeah. Like I just, I came out of culinary school and I had to restart everything. You know, I had to hit a reset button and accept the fact that like no one cared that I had Mm -hmm. a degree from NYU and I worked for this guy, like no one cared. It did not matter. It still, it doesn't Mm -hmm. really. Um, and doing that, like it, number one, it's humbling. Um, but two, like it made me so much more curious. Like I was able to learn something and then like realize I was good at it and want to either pursue that or learn something else and be excited about it. Um, and that took me in like a million different directions for a little while, but it basically like gave me some street cred. Like I got to be able to say, I've done all of these things. I know how to do all of this. Um, and then always pivot it to a new job which is awesome and essentially how I ended up at Chopped. Um, you know, I use all of these random things I've learned along the way every day now, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Young Allie would think this is crazy. <laughs> like crazy in a good way? Crazy, crazy in, in a, a good way. Yeah, of course. I love my job. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I, I think uh, young Anisha, uh, <laughs> pre-culinary Anisha would look at where I am now and sort of my station in life and much more mature and like older. And uh, I would think I would want her to be impressed by what it looks like when you pursue your passion. And so I think that that would be the case, but for sure a surprise that we got here. Um, It's a good place to be. It's a good place to be, (laughs) but it is wild and crazy to think of um, where I am. Like Chops is an awesome company and I, I love my, I love my job and what I get to do every day. But but I think about um, 
sort of the journey to get here and a lot of the little milestones along the way, they contributed, all of them contributed to my ability to execute every day. And, and like Ali said, I put all of those little nuggets of knowledge to, to good use. I know a little bit about a lot of things and it comes in Ali, handy when you need to figure things out. So, um, Ali, one of the things you mentioned earlier when we were talking about meatballs was this idea of like not knowing kind of what would happen to your baby, you know, like you, you and Nisha put together this menu and you do have to put it out to so many locations and you don't know what will happen because you're not there every day. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that QA process, making sure that the, you know, the standards that you set in your kitchens are going to be followed throughout the kitchens of uh, all the different locations and then they understand, you know, along every step of the road what uh, each of these ingredients is supposed to taste like. Sure. Um, I think that it, it's like a crazy thing to have something that you make so much and then to see it in a store. It is very odd. I shouldn't say bad or good or anything. It's just like an odd thing to have something that you created be done by someone else and that you're being served in a restaurant. I don't know if you, you, you're nodding. Yes. It's a, it's a super weird thing. So I would say that there are certain things that, you know, if they're created for chopped, it is created with the intent for that to happen. Um, I don't, it, the weird feeling does not exist anymore. I've been doing this long enough where like things go into a restaurant, like every, my job is everything new at chop. So everything new has been on my computer screen, has been in my kitchen, um, long before it goes into a chop restaurant. It's definitely personal when it's something that whether it's the exact or like a riff on something that you've done for you is out there. So I'd say the, like the quality assurance of that is, knowing all of the things that can go wrong with it. And you know that much more innately when you have done it a million times, not for the context of being in a restaurant. So I've made meatballs like a bajillion times. I have other people have made the meatballs that I make, you know, a million times. Um, and understanding all of the little things that can happen if things are done in a different order or if things, you know, um, are sourced differently, whatever it might be so that we give our teams all of the information, like a nauseating amount of information so that they make the right decisions when we're not there. Like we are not yeah. in the kitchens all the time. We do a, um, a pretty extensive training with them when they're first you know, getting all of the new things, which at CHOP, like it happens pretty often. Um, and they get all of this information and then they have to make it. Yeah. And the scary part is when they make it and then we test it. So we either have to make changes, which thankfully it, they are usually few, like little kind of tweaks. Um, but if something's not working, like we need to kind of start, start over. Yeah. Um, and I think my job, my job specifically is so that that does not happen. Um, so every time I'm doing something, whether it's something that I've made for me or something that's being developed just for chopped, um, all of the little things that need to be a certain way before they go into the mix. Um, so for meatballs, like I would say right now, like ginger is a huge thing. Like the ginger needs to be cut down and broken down. So you don't have these like giant chunks of ginger in a Thai meatball, like that ruins your eating experience. And it's so weird to bite into a meatball and have something be weird in it. Like that's not okay. Um, so we, we make them and we eat them a lot in order to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, but Yeah. yeah, it's definitely weird when it's your own thing versus like a chopped thing. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in two minutes. Great. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. 
make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MoFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food, and we're talking to Anisha Hargrave and Ali Banks of Chopped Salads. Um, before the break, we were talking about the, the process of, of expanding a recipe, going from, you know, one pound of meat and, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 meatballs to 100 pounds of meat and 1,500 or 2,000 meatballs. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Chopped as sort of a, an institution in the trend of fast casual. The company's been around 17 years or so. 18. 18 years. Um, and, and launched really at, at the beginning of, of fast casual as a, as a concept, as a, a type of restaurant. It wasn't something that people had really seen before. Um, and I think still in some of the ways that we were just talking about, serving hot food, uh, your destination bowls where you focus on a specific cuisine, you've still set a trend, um, stayed ahead of the pack in a lot of ways. So I, I wanted to ask, first of all, where you see the industry going? What does is, what is the next five years look like? Um, and then how have you, in the past or in the future, uh, paid attention to that trend and, and incorporated that into your creativity as you develop new dishes? Yeah, I think um, you just touched on it just a little bit with our destination themed salads and rounds that the industry as a whole and not just fast casual, but but definitely fast casual will be a part of it, will continue to be a part of it, exploring global flavors. I think people are much more comfortable now with a lot of words, just terms that are being uh, thrown around and used. Like what? Um, sambal like, Olek. Sambal Olek. <laughs> Zug. Yeah. Like Zug. Or the Yemenite hot sauce. Um, what else do we do? We did a global street food round where we featured a, like a satay chicken. Like satay's been out there, but it, it really felt like people are, are really fully understanding what the flavor is supposed to mean now when we say the word. Um, yeah, but I think people in general are becoming more comfortable with learning about global cultures and their food and wanting to keep the people and their food together so they can learn about both and, and our destinations through that. We're hopefully making people more curious um, about travel and about discovering food along the way. How do you find that your customers engage with those destination bowls? Is it, are they tasting things because they're familiar with the cuisine and they want to see how you express it? Or are they tasting things because they've never heard of uh, you know, green curry meatballs and they want to, they want to see what it tastes like. Well, we hope it's a combination of all of those things. Like, so there is some sort of familiarity with some of the words that, are, that we use. So that's the challenge for our marketing department and in, in particular to, to make it relatable for people. So there has to be something about it that you recognize, that you trust, that you know. And, and our first core job with destinations, but with all of our food is to make it taste good. So if you trust us enough to invest whatever amount of money that you pay for a dish, whether it's a warm bowl destination or otherwise, if we make it taste good, the other things that you learn or discover are a bonus, but the food has to taste good. So as long as we uh, capitalize on that and, and really execute on it, people will, will continue to come back and explore and explore. And so that's our, that's our core task there. Can we talk a little bit about um, how you pick these destinations? Right now it's Thailand, it sounds like right before it was Italy, um, and how you kind of distill down. Obviously there's tons of culinary culture and history and all of that in all of these places, so how do you distill down the, the themes and the ingredients that you want to use for a set of bowls? One of the challenges that we find, and I think Allie would agree, <laughs> is that there's so much good food out there and great food cultures and food ways, not all of them are applicable to salad. So that's part of the challenge. So that doesn't stop us from exploring them, but the harsh reality is that we cannot bring all of them to light um, and do it in a respectful manner. Like we start with, can we make it taste good? Is it feasible for our teams to execute? But can we do it with reverence for the community, for the people, for the culture? Because again, it's very difficult to separate those things and we don't want to. So um, if we can check all of those boxes, then we'll continue to pursue it and then we'll go into our ideation and creative phase and, and work on making that come to a salad bowl near you. But we have to, uh, we have to first um, 
answer answer those questions. Can you give us some examples of dishes that that you've been able to successfully translate with reverence, which is a, a great way to talk about it. I've never heard anybody mm -hmm. use that word, but I think that's perfect. Um, so a dish that you were able to translate with reverence and a dish that the translation didn't work so well? I think even starting with our chicken tinga warm bowl, like even before it was a warm bowl and it was a warm salad, just the idea of tinga, like the real Mexican dish. So it's one that many folks of Mexican descent and other people uh, know within their homes, within their communities, and let's research and find the core ingredients that are supposed to be in this. Can we source them? Should we uh, figure out a way to you know, build brand partnerships to highlight the best versions of them? But using ingredients like Mexican oregano was important. Like you can't swap out Greek oregano. That doesn't work. So uh, making sure that we took cues from uh, traditional recipes uh, around a dish like that was important to us and continues to be important. We don't have to exactly replicate it, but we do need to, to honor the traditions. Um, like Ali said, the Italian meatballs, like, yeah. Well, so that's one where um, I can't say that it didn't work, but we thought a million different ways of how to present Italian salads. And, you know, what you see is the stuff that worked. Like there's a lot of iterations of things that don't work or that we don't even want to play in that space. Those meatballs were not sitting in the tomato sauce that I make or that I grew up eating on a Sunday. They were sitting in a... Um, sun-dried tomato sort of pesto-like warm concoction because we don't want to make marinara sauce and not make it well. And we know what our limits are and we know mm -hmm. what, what works flavor-wise, but also like what works, um, I don't know, to sort of be sensitive without ruining something. Like we, yeah. didn't, we weren't going to make it so that it was great um, or great in a way where it could be interpreted and supported by people eating it. So we just didn't. We just went in a different direction. You know, we covered what we had to cover, but it's not it's not your grandma's tomato sauce for sure. Could you tell us about the the dish you made with Job's Tears, your your California yes. destination? <laughs> um, and, I, and what are Job's Tears? Sure. So first of all, I will say I love Job's Tears, Job's and he's just gonna so nod. They're great. They're, They're so great. great. So Job's Tears um, are actually used um, for tea, for jewelry. It's a super archaic thing. Um, it is not some trendy thing that we thought up. Um, these have been around uh, for many, many years, um, and they're sort of starting to come to be uh, represented in the American food space. And I think that that's um, number one because they're good. They're kind of a, a grain, right? They look like little corn kernels almost. Yeah. So they're um, like a pseudo grain. They look like tiny little black eyed peas. Like they're yeah. they're mm -hmm. small um, and they're gluten free. So that's obviously a trendy thing that goes on in our world now. Um, and we like them. They're really resilient. They don't get soft and fall apart. Um, they taste good. Uh, they're not chalky when they're cooked correctly. And we mix them with a little bit of quinoa because everyone loves quinoa. And the bowl was great. But we were definitely at the forefront of that being a trendy thing. I feel like in five years, you talk about your five-year timeline, where do we see things? Like Job's Tears will be a thing for yeah. sure. They're great. Like the way that quinoa became a thing, like it, it will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And it didn't happen when we ran them almost two years ago, but they were good. And the people that had them liked them. We like them. We like them. We yeah. ate a lot of them. <laughs> They're it's good. So Put funny. them in your seat. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. It's very popular in Chinese cuisine for mm -hmm. like, yeah. For, like, yeah. And I, I kind of forgot all about them until I was at the store the other day, I was like, oh, yeah, these little guys, like, I should do something with them. We so need them in American like, cuisine. Oh, that's right. <laughs> they have to come back. So, Jenny, have you done anything with them yet? I mean, I've been thinking about doing, like, so there's um, a Chinese dish uh, that's, like, glutinous rice balls that's stuffed with, like, sesame, usually, or, um, or red beans. So I'm thinking about maybe using, like, Job's Tears in that and doing, a, a like, a stuffed thing that's not this rice ball. It's a similar thing of like I want to pay, you know, you want to pay homage to your um, to your culture without saying that you're doing traditional food. Yeah. Which brings me to I was going to ask about like naming conventions and nomenclature is also very delicate and kind of um, important when it comes to doing these bowls from different destinations. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how, like, kind of the iterations it goes to and making sure, you know, that the name is it's specific, so it evokes the, the place that you're thinking of and you want customers to associate with, but doesn't feel too, I guess, general. Um, 
I'll start. So I would say that the first thing that we think about when it comes to naming a salad is that it's descriptive without being off-putting. And I don't mean that in a way that something isn't ethnically sensitive or whatever it might be, but if you can't pronounce a name, like no one's going to order it. So you might have a salad and chime in if you think of one that I'm not thinking of, but if we have a salad that's like... um, from a place, you know, we've, we've toyed with a couple of Szechuan ideas. If people do not know how to pronounce Szechuan, no one will order the Szechuan salad. So it's just, it's not a thing that's going to happen. So we try and think of things that are descriptive, um, culinarily speaking, um, so that we can shed light on like the eating experience that you're going to have, but also allude to what kind of, um, you know, flavor and ethnic um, situation you're going to be involved in once you get into the bowl. Um, So right now we have a crunchy Thai market salad. Um, It it doesn't say any city in Thailand. It doesn't even necessarily say any of the ingredients that are in it. But you know the eating experience that you're going to have when you get into it. Um, And I'm sure you have a million other ideas as you look at me. No, like I think uh, one of the things for us that we focus on a lot is is isn't accurate. And truth in menu, just in the industry in general, is a real thing. It should continue to be a real thing. And, and for us, yeah. it's no different. And, and we will not sacrifice accuracy and being truthful for wanting to use a word because it works well with a theme. And so we go through a painstaking process to fully vet all of the things that Ali mentioned and accuracy and, and making sure that we are being, um, we're being, um, truthful to the food culture and the people and a real dish if if a salad is inspired by a real recipe or a cultural dish like we go through all of those layers and and that's cross-departmentally it's it's a whole almost a company process for all the teams that do touch um, our menu from marketing to uh, food and beverage and it's important for us we spend a lot of time doing it we over communicate about it. There it's a are lots huge of emails, education component. A bunch of slacking um, for it. Like we, yeah, yeah. It's it's huge, and um, and everybody's voice is heard there. We want to make sure that we feel good about what we're putting out into the food world. Um, that represents us as a company, but also represents what we feel like our place is uh, in the industry. Like we want we want our customers to trust us. It's also interesting the way that we end up landing on a name, like everything in hindsight, you can kind of laugh yeah. a little bit about. Um, Anisha and I are definitely pretty stringent about accuracy yes. of like, that is not a thing in the food world. Well, I'll explain. Oh, yeah, like, so <laughs> we had, um, we essentially had like a, a salsa verde type sauce. It was with tomatillos, green chilies, the whole bit. And the thought was to maybe call it green tinga. And that is Guys, not, not a real. thing. Not a thing. So Anisha and I, we have, I know the expression that she has. <laughs> she knows my look yeah. when we have to bear, you know, take a deep breath and explain like, no, that's that's yeah. not actually a thing. We can't call it that just because Tinga is popular and you know Tinga as this sauced chicken um, doesn't mean that green mm-hmm. Tinga is a thing. That's not a thing. You yeah. know, Tinga sauce is red. Um, and those things happen, you know, that's one that, you know, that was a hard conversation for yes. the two of us to sort of sit in on. But the people that are chiming in, they eat the salad and then you think of a name. And it's a really good place to come from because a lot of our customers wouldn't necessarily know that. And we have to be the authority on that. Like mm-hmm. we can't call something that's completely made up. Like you, you can't do that um, and, and play in this field and have credibility. So it's always good to have those ideas. Yeah. Even if we very nicely slash them. <laughs> yeah. um, in the last few minutes of the podcast, we're going to do our rapid fire fun question segment. Yay. Awesome. Uh, so I'll throw a question out. And, and if both of you want to answer, if one of you wants to answer, however you want to do it. Um, let's start with if you could master a skill overnight, what would it be? I would be a barber. Barber. Yeah. Oh. Very. That's you are the first person who has ever yeah. had that answer to that question. I legit want to be a barber so bad. If there was a like an evening and weekend class to be a barber, I would be in. What is it about cutting hair that that she you're talks so about excited this all the time. about? This like it's thing. awesome. Like a good haircut can set somebody up for ultimate success in their life. Like you, you do have man, an excellent haircut. I, I have to you. say, I appreciate that. But I love that. I I don't know. Like 
I don't know when this happened to me, but I love. Maybe it's since I started to cut my hair. Like you I, cut your own hair? Well, no, I didn't. No, no, <laughs> I do not want that <laughs> responsibility. No, but since I like kind of went like faux hawkish, like um, I became really curious about haircuts and the idea of a barbershop culturally is awesome, and it's just a place where interesting things happen and are said. But uh, a haircut. Like using clippers to do this amazing artwork, essentially, is really intriguing to me. Mm. If there is a program out there, I will take it. Maybe that's that's your third career change. Yeah, is, or just uh, like yeah. just like a, a side, side hustle. Job. Right. I'll take it as a side hustle because it, I really am interested. You can barber cut people's hair in cars while serving them <laughs> salads. There's a food truck <laughs> right. where you can get right. a haircut exactly. and something awesome to eat. Exactly. I'll let you cut this hair. If that's you do awesome. That. <laughs> yeah, if you need volunteers to practice, yeah, listen, I need guys, a haircut. Guys, remember you said this on this podcast. Guess, I will come it's, back. To it's going to live on the internet forever. Yeah. You can't yeah. cut your hair. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but 15 days after uh, Chinese New Year, you can't cut your hair in that window. So don't cut it yet. Wait, Lou? That's I, a I thing. Didn't even know that. I'm like oh, newly I'm... interested in Chinese New Year facts. <laughs> um, Allie, what would your uh, what would your skill to master um, be? In a totally different direction. I think sailing. I like love That's to sail, awesome. but to master it and like be able to go on a really cool sailing adventure by myself. Like if I could learn that overnight, I'd be. Where would you sail to? Yeah, where would you go? Um, probably East Coast. So I I learned on a very long fishing trip that I don't do very well with Pacific rolling seas, but like East Coast choppy <laughs> water, totally fine. So I don't know, down to the Keys or something. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You can invite us all along. You can right? totally um, come. Anisha not? will cut you your hair. Uh, amazing. Right. Amazing. Re- research for a new destination. That's goal. right. Jenny? Um, so if you uh, could eat only one chopped salad forever, which one would it be? Ooh. But it doesn't have to be a current salad. Any salad that you have. Oh, so That's so hard. I have one. When I think about the salad a lot and that it's not coming back this year. I'm so disappointed. But uh, so for Destination California last year, we did... It was the salad with the spicy, with the hot mustard dressing. Oh, that's such a good, um, it was a Chinatown chicken chicken salad. salad. Oh, it's so good. What was in it? Um, (laughs) It was char siu chicken, pickled radish, um, crispy rice crackers, and it had this um, dressing that is inspired by, you know, the packets of mustard that you get in a Chinese takeout order. Um, those. Uh, so it was a super hot, like you feel it in your sinuses and dressing. And ginger in it. I've made it like a bajillion that times. Dressing, I can still smell it. Oh my gosh. That dressing is like my favorite, but that salad, like I eat the destinations when they come out, of course, but we've eaten them so much by the time they hit the streets that it's like, I try to make crazy combinations out of the featured ingredients more than anything else. But this salad, I was eating nearly every day. Wow. It's a good one. Wow. Allie, do you have one? Um, Ooh, every day, you know, it's really hard. First of all, they're all like my little babies, these little <laughs> salads like I put out into the world and then they disappear. Um, every day, every day. Um, I know what I wouldn't have every day that's like a guilty pleasure for me is a Mexican Caesar wrap. Mm. And if I'm really, mm-hmm. really, you know, feeling it, I do fried chicken and then mm. I dip it in more dressing and it's spicy <laughs> and so good. It's so good. And when she eats it, she has the biggest smile on her face. Oh the my God. Whole time. I wish you could see the smile on her face now. She's like imagining it's it. It's so good. It's so good. It's a really, really good dressing um, that I don't usually eat. But and shout out to people who put cranberries in their Mexican Caesar. Caesar's, that's it's, a thing. It's, it's like one thing. of the most popular add-ons. Yeah, mm. it's a it has it's like a secret menu kind of deal. Try like it people out. love it. It's really oh. good. You should try it. What's the best meal you've ever had other than a chopped salad that costs less than ten dollars? Um, I had pineapple fried rice on a beach in Thailand when I was like sort of jet lagged and I ate it for breakfast. That was mind blowing. Mm. So good. Like best textures, flavors, sauces. I was putting things like God only knows what was in it. I have no idea. I don't speak a word of Thai, but I ordered it and it was amazing. And I think about that. Like that's the threshold for all fried rice. And I love fried rice. Uh, All fried rice eaten on a beach in Thailand. Yes. (laughs) Rough life. We should all be so lucky. (laughs) That was a between careers trip. Right, right, right. I will go more recent and I had this meal um, two days ago. I was in Napa. Two days ago was the yeah. best meal you've ever had. It was one of the a best. Good one. It was All right. one of the best under ten dollars, uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was like two days ago. So I was in Napa and um, near uh, CIA's like second campus in Copia. But anyway, so there's a this sandwich shop, and I was 
really in the mood for something low key. Like it'd been like a few days of just like a lot of chefs and a lot of talking and I want something low key that I could take to my room. And so somebody told me about this family, this Mexican family that takes over a sandwich shop down the street from our hotel and they do tacos, but what they're known for um, is their al pastor, which it's legit. Like they have the spit with the pineapple, you see the layers of the meat. And so I was like, all right, I'm gonna go. So I went, greatest little family, like this little preteen daughter um, and the mom and dad, and they're shaving, uh, shaving the meat, but they had a torta, which is my favorite type of sandwich. It has all the things you maybe didn't even know you wanted on a sandwich. And so I got... Um, she thinks got a the, lot about sandwiches. Yeah, I, yeah I, like, I can tell. I, like, a... I think about food via a sandwich. Like, can I make this into a sandwich? <laughs> literally. A perfect bite. Yeah, literally. And so I got the torta uh, with the al pastor. And it was... I'm, I'm in my room, like, wanting to tell somebody else about it. It was so good. It delivered in every way possible... I was angry I was full because it was so close by. I wish I could have eaten another one. It was really, really delicious. It was and the it was first like, word out of her mouth when I said, how was your trip? <laughs> <laughs> no lie. Like that's, that's what I started. That's with. awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Um, tell our listeners where they can find you, find out more about how chopped, uh, creates salads. Are you on Instagram? Are you on Twitter? And, and what to look out for with new destination bowls or anything new that's launching at Chopped? Um, I would say definitely go to chopsalad.com. You can order there now. Um, try out some Thai salads. They're amazing. Try out those meatballs They're that so we've good. talked about. They're, They're so very good. good. Um, Chopped Instagram always has amazing customer crafts on there. Um, I'm also on Instagram, AllieBanks24. You're on Instagram? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. It's just food, the number two. So I-T-S, just food, the number two. Yeah, that's where you can find me most Great. often. Thanks for joining us. Um, as always, you can reach us at whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, you can find me via my spice company on Instagram at burlap and barrel or Ethan at burlap and barrel.com. Jenny? And you can find me at, at Chef Jenny Dorsey and uh, on Instagram, Facebook, and occasionally Twitter, but not really. Um, and yes, please email us questions, nominations, guests you'd like to see. Um, thoughts on the show and as always thank you to blind uh Dorothy's on blind by the red cricket and thanks to amanda our awesome engineer see you next week thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>